Picture this, you're sitting down to watch a live poetry performance. The first poet takes the stage, and as they begin to read, they're accompanied by a live jazz band. If this sounds intriguing, well, you're in luck. International Jazz Poetry Month returns to Pittsburgh on May 2nd. The festival features more than 50 artists, including local jazz icons and poets from Algeria, Cuba, Sudan, and Ukraine. Tickets to watch online or in person at City of Asylum's home on the north side are free. Get yours at cityofasylum.org before they're gone. Today on CityCast Pittsburgh, the inside of a pierogi can be filled with potato and pretty much anything else complimentary you can find in your kitchen. But how did the pierogi become a staple in Pittsburgh's culinary culture? We're tracing the origins of the Eastern European dumpling from Polish kitchens to Pittsburgh bellies with food historian Dr. Julia Hudson Richards. It's Wednesday, December 7th. I'm Morgan Moody, and this is CityCast Pittsburgh. Okay, Julia, what is your favorite type of pierogi? I'm traditional. I like, partly because I like anything that has to do with potatoes. Yeah. So I'll just go for plain potatoes and cheese. I've had some dessert ones that I really like. I don't know. I just, I love food. Yeah. I'm a food historian. I I work with food. I talk about food. So um, the only thing I don't really like is the ones with mushrooms because no matter how many times I've tried, I just don't like mushrooms. What's the history of pierogies? They're so they're they're so like beloved here so in beloved. Pittsburgh, you know. But all we know is that they're they're like Polish, and I feel they're like Polish. that's about it. Yeah. So every culture on every continent has some form of dumpling, and a pierogi is just a dumpling, right? Mm-hmm. And we're not really entirely sure. Most scholars think that dumplings originate in China, and that's as good. Basically, a world history answer to where did that come from. China is a pretty good answer. I will say that there are indigenous American and African dumplings, and we don't know when those developed. So is that pre or post contact? Um, I think that it is possible that those dumplings predated any sort of like larger trading contact with the rest of the world as well. Mm. But a lot of people really, when they're looking at pierogi and even things like gnocchi, look to the connections between Europe and Asia in the high middle ages right the high medieval period a lot of people say that pierogi developed in the 12th or 13th century in poland you have a lot of really kind of interesting mythology around saint hyacinth uh feeding famine victims with pierogi and they becoming a sacred food but we don't see an actual recipe for pierogi written down yeah uh, the uh, the earliest i can find is in a cookbook called compendium uh, Ferculorum by Stanislav uh, Trenetsky from the late 17th century. And this would have been for elites. That was that was a cookbook, you said? That was a cookbook. Wow. And it's, it's a brick, too. It is enormous. And it's part of a, a huge explosion of Polish cookbook publication in the late 17th century that's geared at the people who cook for elites. But those pierogi 
ended up being part of that original Polish cookbook. So we may not know whether the dish originated in what we now know today as Poland, but because it's in a Polish cookbook, they claim the pedigree. And it makes sense. I say, with the with the history of uh, the pierogi, are there any like traditional flavors? Because I think, you know, we, we know that we can go to the grocery store and get a box of Miss T's, you know, and like it's or Mrs. T's and it's it's, you know, any flavor essentially that we want. But are there original flavors? So not that I could find, you know, you hear so often potatoes, potatoes, potatoes. That's the first ingredient that's always listed. Right. It was probably in that original cookbook. I couldn't uh, access an English copy of the recipe and I unfortunately don't read Polish. But they wouldn't have been in the 13th century pierogi because there were no potatoes in Europe until after the discovery of the Americas and the incorporation of food from the Americas into the European diet, which creates this whole boost of nutrition for Europeans. Wait, so pierogies weren't made with potatoes at that time. So what were they made of? So uh, farmer cheese uh, is one that's probably uh, would have been a traditional Um, because that would have been something that would have been made in peasant kitchens by peasant wives pretty consistently. And that's because pierogi, like a lot of other dumplings, are at their heart their peasant food. Mm. They pack caloric bang for your buck. They can be made into sort of ordinary everyday food where you just throw what you have in your kitchen or in your garden, mushrooms, um, easily cooked down vegetables. But they can also be made really fancy. (laughs) I I had a friend that... uh... I I brought to Pittsburgh um, for work and I had him try a pierogi and he was like, this tastes like poor people food. And I'm like, well, it is. You know what I mean? This is the food that people had to get to like stick to their ribs to to make it through. Precisely. And being poor people food, it meant that the vast majority of people were eating it because most people were poor. Right. And uh, but you could make it a special dish. You could have and people did. They had unique Christmas fillings and unique Easter fillings and um, things that you would do for you know family celebrations, and you can make them into desserts. And so that's really where the magic of a dumpling in general and pierogi in particular rests, right? That it's so versatile and becomes such a staple that it gets co-opted mm-hmm. by the upper classes, which is usually it usually goes the other way. <laughs> yeah. How have pierogies evolved um, since they've come to America? One of the things that I think is really, really interesting that happened in the late 19th century when the bulk of Eastern European immigrants are coming into the United States. And uh, this would have been the experience of Italian immigrants or Irish immigrants. You want to cook the food that you're familiar with, Mm -hmm. but you're decentered. You don't have the kinds of ingredients that or or you get new ingredients. So now all of a sudden you're using uh, a different kind of oil or you're able, you have access to different kinds of spices. Mm. And so food in and of itself sort of transcends um, traditional ingredients when you move it to a new environment. Mm-hmm. And so that's really where you ended up seeing a lot of the innovation take place in this in this sort of Polish diaspora that we see really originating in the 19th century. And that's sort of where Pittsburgh enters the chat, right? Uh, something like 2 million ethnic Poles came over, but they didn't live in Poland. They lived in Germany or Russia or Austria-Hungary. Mm-hmm. And they're coming over and becoming Polish 
in an environment that's much less oppressive than the one that they left. Mm -hmm. And they're entering urban areas where their access to food is just going to be different. You don't have the fresh grown vegetables you have in your garden. And so that's one of the places where we might very well see, even though we don't have any records for it, we might very well see the reliance on things like potatoes in pierogi um, as a staple ingredient because they're cheap, Mm -hmm. they store well, and they would have been widely available in urban areas. Do you like to dance, look at beautiful art, eat gourmet snacks, people watch? Well, mark your calendars for Friday, June 7th for one of my favorite parties in Pittsburgh. It's Mattress Factory's 25th Garden Party. The theme this year is make-believe, and it's all to celebrate and support the creatives in our community. There's going to be live music, an open bar, an art auction, and probably my favorite, the costume contest. Trust me, I will be judging yins and so will everyone else there be playful be imaginative explore your magical realm because this is a theme party you want to come dressed to impress you must be 21 and up to attend and rest assured every dollar raised goes directly towards supporting the museum its art its education and all of its community outreach initiatives get your tickets now to the 25th mattress factory garden party they are in our show notes and online at mattress.org. You have studied a lot as far as food and history, so take this fact with a grain of salt. But according to Mrs. T's, we're not the pierogi capital of America, mm-hmm. but it's places that are close by where I feel like you can find good pierogies. It's Buffalo, Binghamton, Bing- um, Rochester. Rochester. I know there's a big pierogi, you know, thing in like Cleveland, even. Um, uh, yeah, but. Uh, uh, are we are we I don't know unique in our in our passion for pierogies? I mean, I think yes and no. So, and uh, which is not an answer, and I apologize. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, in a lot of ways, yes, because one of the things that happens. So, you have this initial wave of immigrants that comes over, and then then there are two additional waves of Polish immigrants into the United States. One after World War II. And one after the collapse of the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. uh, or after the collapse of communism. But one of the things that happens with regard to immigrant communities, and I know my family went through this, we came over from Ireland, and you lose touch with the place where your family came from. Right. That's just a normal process of being second, third, fourth generation uh, new Americans, right? But food connects you back to that in a certain, to a certain extent. Italian food connects you back to this uh, Italian past that you didn't actually get to participate in. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have any relationship to modern day Italian culture or politics in in the same way that I don't have very much connection to contemporary Irish culture or politics, but I'm still going to eat Irish stew and have some soda bread on St. Patrick's Day, right? And it makes me connected to my past in a way that if you stayed in that place, you would have had those long-term sort of generational connections. Um, Pittsburgh is unique because first and foremost, we maintained a lot of those ethnic markers in Pittsburgh, uh, like our land, our ethnic landmarks. Right. They become our, even though they're not ethnic neighborhoods in the same way anymore. But we've managed to make that part of our city's identity in what I think feels like a unique way. Is that is that why you feel like pierogies are so essential to our identity here? 
I do. I think it's part of it. I think part of it too is economic. Um, you know, in the in the post-industrial period, mm-hmm. cities are especially. I, I, I hate to call us a second tier city. I really like it here, um, but we're not New York. We're not Boston. Right. We're not LA. Right. We're not Chicago. We're a small right? city. We're a small city comparatively. Um, our major economic impact, of course, was the steel industry, and we lost a lot of that. And now we have to find a new identity, and we have to project that identity to the rest of the world. We want to get people to come here. Uh, we want to get people to contribute to our economy. We like it when people move here. And so we choose things that sort of represent us as a city. And I think pierogi function in that way, not just because of the the dominant Polish presence, which of course is really important, but because of just the Eastern European diaspora. It isn't just Poles, it's Ukrainians and Slovaks all of whom had a version of pierogi. And so that becomes this really easy food marker for uh, for Pittsburgh as a community. And I do think it's one of the reasons why, you know, for example, when they're trying to figure out what do we do for the seventh inning stretch, let's rice pierogi, you know, just like, uh, who is it, Milwaukee that does sausages. Mm -hmm. It's kitschy. It's fun. It's something to do during the baseball game. It's, but it's also an image on the occasions where they put the pirates on TV, right? Um, which <laughs> not, has not happened. much to see. More, more of the, the pierogi race is probably a little right. bit more interesting. Um, but then you get, you know, you get conversation started. You get people saying, "Well, I don't know what a pierogi is. I'm going to look up pierogi. Well, that looks like something I want to try." And they connect it to our cities. So then, when they come here, they say, "Well, where can I get good pierogi? Can I get something good down at the strip? Are there good, you know, where can I do this?" And so. It helps city, you know, whatever food you choose. And I really like to look at the relationship between sort of food and local identity and the way that we build um, festivals and uh, and events around food, right? Yeah. Whether it's, you know, Pickle Fest or um, there's a festival in Spain where everybody throws tomatoes at each other for an hour. I really like looking at the sort of significance of those things because... It be you know even if personally you don't even like pierogi if somebody insults pierogi it's something that you can say you know what that's our thing you yeah. you you know you can just leave us alone with that and so I think it becomes a different thing in this sort of post industrial environment that we live in where we're trying to construct a new identity and mm-hmm. that that new identity still needs to be rooted in who we have been as a city. And I think Pierogi does that really well. What is a a really good place, based on your research, personal and academic, (laughs) to get pierogies in Pittsburgh? So it's funny that you ask that. So um, I've gotten at Pierogies Plus, S&D Diner. I haven't gone any of the newer places just because since COVID, I have not been out to eat quite so much. But I mentioned to some Mm -hmm. students today that I was doing this and I had eight people yell new places at me. Um, <laughs> that I needed to try in a variety of neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Now, the best thing that I can say is if you can find a church fundraiser that's selling pierogi that have been made by you know elderly women in the back, that's where you really want to go. You got to look for those. They're the not fish fries. Be, yeah, the fish fry <laughs> unit. That's what you got to hit up. <laughs> the old ladies in the church. <laughs> those are the very best, right? Of all food, I don't care what cuisine you're talking about. They're making the best food. Dr. Julia Hudson-Richards is an instructor in the University of Pittsburgh's Department of History. Thank you for joining us, Julia. This was a lot of fun. A little more news before you go. 
About half of high schoolers in Pittsburgh public schools were chronically absent last year. That's from a new report from the advocacy group A Plus Schools. Chronically absent is missing more than 18 days. A Plus Schools says the biggest barriers to attendance are healthcare, transit, housing, and safety. Overall, 42% of Pittsburgh Public School students were chronically absent compared to 27% the year before. And the city of Pittsburgh is looking for snow angels. Snow angels are volunteers to help seniors and people with disabilities salt and shovel their sidewalks. If you're interested, you can sign up on the city's website and the Department of Public Works will match you with a resident who's less than a 10 minute walk away. That's all for today here on CityCast Pittsburgh. If you're stuffed full of information after this show, tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with mornings from around the city, so we'll see you then. I mean, I guess Dr. Julia Hudson Richards. <laughs> Feels so awkward. And I always say that I'll use it until I pay off my loan. So forever, like I'll just use it forever.